0: Please turn again in your Bibles to Psalm 84, to Psalm 84. Now we're in a, a series this summer, as we've done uh, every summer since we've been a church. Uh, we are considering various psalms in these uh, months, and there's something about the rhythm of that I've really enjoyed and appreciated coming to this season of the year and knowing that we're going to be in the psalms. We come this morning to Psalm 84. I'm not going to read it again. Ben just read it a moment ago. Uh, The exact context of this psalm is something of a mystery to commentators. The authorship is unknown. Some think it is as that uh, subscript says, that it's a psalm of the sons of Korah. Uh, That could mean either it's by one of the sons of Korah or uh, for the sons of Korah. Some even think that David wrote this psalm uh, the authorship is not exactly clear, nor is the period in which this psalm was written. Uh, but it does say that this is a Psalm 4 or 2, the sons of Korah. Now, the sons of Korah were special uh, singers, vocalists. They had certain choral assignments in uh, the gathered worship of God, and beyond that, uh, we learn in First Chronicles that they were also doorkeepers in the house of God. They were assigned to stand at the entrance of the house of God. More on that later in this message. Uh, So, Psalm 84, furthermore, is something of what could be called a pilgrim psalm, a psalm that centers around the idea of pilgrimage to the central worship place of God, whether that's the tabernacle or the temple. Uh, Under the old covenant, under the law of Moses, each Israelite was required to make pilgrimage three times a year to the central place of worship, which at first was the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, which moved between the various tribes. That was the central meeting place where God's people were to worship Him. Later, it became the temple. Uh, As David is sitting in a palace of cedar and smelling the cedars, uh, he, he, he thinks that surely it is right that we would build a temple for the Lord God. And it wasn't, of course, David who built the temple, but his son Solomon who built the temple. And then that replaced the tabernacle as the central worship place for the people of God. Whatever the case may be, Uh, The law of Moses required that the people of Israel three times a year would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to Zion, to the hill of the Lord where the temple was to worship God. And those three pilgrimages uh, are outlined for us in Exodus 23 verses 14 through 17, which highlight those particular seasons. Uh, The Israelites were to make their pilgrimages uh, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, also known as the Feast of Passover. Uh, Then the Feast of Harvest, which is what's being celebrated in Acts 2 at the Feast of Pentecost, and then the Feast of Ingathering, also known as the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, Famously, Jesus in John 7 is visiting Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles, and it's there He stands up on the great and final day of the feast and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. So, the average Israelite uh, technically was only required to visit the temple three times per year. Uh, We should not imagine that the average Israelite was able to access the temple every week. That would not have been feasible for every Israelite. Now there were special individuals, special exceptions made like the royal family, certain attendants to the worship of God that were permitted to go more frequently, but most Israelites did not enjoy that privilege. Uh, they, They were not like in the situation that we're in that weekly they were going to a church gathering. Uh, in the way that we think of that today. There were three special times a year when they would go to the temple to gather to worship God. So, to go to the house of God, as you can imagine, if you are one of those Israelites who only enjoyed that privilege three times a year, what a special occasion it would have been on one of those special feast days when you can gather and go with the people of God to the hill of God to worship Him in His temple. You may be familiar, if you know the Psalms well, you may be familiar with certain Psalms that are known as songs of ascent. There's a number of these Psalms in our Bibles. Uh, the, The primary collection of them is in Psalms 120 through 134, and these were songs that the Israelites would sing as they ascended to the hill of the Lord to worship God, and it's quite stirring and instructive To read those Psalms, 120 through 134, and to see the sorts of things that were in the minds and hearts of the people of God as they ascended the hill, preparing to gather with God's people to worship God in His presence. I personally think Psalm 84 in some ways belongs in that category. It is a pilgrim psalm. It anticipates a pilgrimage to the house of God. Now, it's probable the psalmist is not on his way to the house of God but he's longing for the day when he will be. He's thinking about when he will next be in the courts of the Lord. Now, looking at the psalm, some commentators believe that this psalm is structured around three statements of blessing. Uh, One is found in verse 4, another in verse 5, and the final one in verse 12. Now, I'm not going to follow that structure that many of the commentators identify in this sermon this morning, uh, nor am I really going to give a straightforward exposition of Psalm 84. Rather, I want us to consider certain portions of this psalm, and I want us to ask the following question. What does Psalm 84 teach us about gathered worship, or to use the old phrase, corporate worship? What does Psalm 84 teach us about gathered worship, and particularly the believing posture toward gathered worship. So, I'd like to open up this psalm and some of the portions therein under three main headings. Consider with me in the first place, the psalmist's longing for gathered worship. The psalmist's longing for gathered worship. Please look again at verses 1 and 2. How lovely is Your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. The psalmist begins with a declaration of the loveliness of God's house. He delights in the loveliness and the beauty of the temple courts. Of course, Solomon's temple was stunning in its beauty, elaborate and ornate in its design. It's striking to read the description of Solomon's temple in 1 Kings chapter 6, just to note all the gold that was expended on the temple, everything overlaid and and inlaid with gold in the temple and how stunning it would have appeared when the sun's rays uh, uh, cast upon that gold as God's people ascended the hill to worship God. And of course, the temple's uh, august and glorious appearance was designed to bespeak something of the glory of God Himself, the transcendent beauty of the courts of the Lord were meant were by design uh, to evoke something of the transcendence and beauty and glory of the Lord Himself. And no doubt the psalmist found the temple to be in some ways aweing and inspiring, and perhaps he felt captivated by its architecture and its elaborate interior design. He even may have felt some measure of sacred nostalgia uh, connected to the experiences he had had within those walls and those temple beams. Maybe you've had a similar experience with a particular building. Maybe it's maybe even the church building you grew up in and that you attended as a kid. If you come from a high church background, typically in Catholic circles or Anglican circles, they value architecture a lot more than low church Baptists like us. And maybe if you have that kind of a background, you think about those buildings and you think, wow, that was really striking. That was uh, really something. But of course, for the psalmist, Though he certainly would have special associations with the building itself, what makes the temple loveliest of all to him was not principally the external beauty of the temple, but the very real fact that the temple was the special dwelling place of God. There in the temple, God was said to dwell. God's special presence, His special presence was manifest there in a special way. And there in the temple, His people experienced the unusual, some ways mysterious, nearness of God. It was in the gathering of God's people in the temple that God disclosed His presence to His people, and they experienced in the context of the gathered worship of God, something of special fellowship and communion with Him. And and this is no doubt what constituted the loveliness of the temple for the psalmist. It was God's dwelling place. That's what made this temple court so special. Even more than all the ornate adornments, even more than all the gold, it's that God in some sense lived there. He made Himself known there. He revealed Himself, disclosed Himself to His people in a special way through the temple courts. And this, no doubt, is what constituted the loveliness for the psalmist. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. And then he says, my soul longs, yes, faints. That language is imagining someone who perhaps is parched and needs a drink, and you're fainting, looking for water or for food to eat. My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. It should be translated, cry aloud for the living God, my soul longs, my soul faints for the courts of the Lord. I want to be in the house of God." These words are redolent of another psalm that is also a psalm for the sons of Korah. Maybe you've thought of it already, Psalm 42. You don't need to turn there, but the first two verses read as follows as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You hear the yearning, like a deer that's panting for flowing streams. My soul faints. When will I come and appear before the living God? The longing to be with God among His people in God's House. Well, back in our passage in Psalm 84 two, the psalmist says, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. He wants to be where God is. He longs to be gathered with the saints in the worship of God, in that special place where God has revealed that he will make himself specially known. It's as though no matter where he was in the world, he is looking forward to the next time when he can be in gathered worship with God's people in God's special presence. Some of the commentators believe that this psalm was perhaps written at a time of exile for Israel, a time in which God's people were deprived of access to the temple. If so, you could imagine the sense of longing to be back in Zion city, to be back in Jerusalem, and to be once again in the holy courts of the Lord. Others believe this psalm was written in a more ordinary season for Israel, but even still you would have had this longing to be in the temple at the appointed seasons, Uh, To be able to ascend the hill of the Lord? When's it going to be my turn to come? When is that that season coming when we can together ascend to the mountain of God and to the temple? Whatever the background, we should note this healthy longing, fainting, hungering, pining for the gathering and for the worship of God. And then the psalmist goes on in verse 3. He says, even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself. For she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Uh, the sparrow in scripture, number of texts, is seen as sort of the least of all the creatures. Uh, the sparrow is just a, a cheap and inconsequential and insignificant creature, and so Jesus says at one point are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them falls to the ground without your father's care. What is Jesus saying? If God takes care of so small a creature as the sparrows, if He takes care of the least of these, surely He will take care of those who are created in His own image. I think that's kind of how the psalmist is referring to sparrows here. Uh, The psalmist is in essence saying even the sparrow uh, gets to fly and to ascend to the courts of the Lord and make their nests in the architecture of the temple of God, and, and how I wish I could be like a bird and fly and to ascend up to the hill of the Lord any time that I wanted to. Uh, even the sparrows get to go to the house of God. When am I going to get to go to the house of God? I think that's something of the idea there. Verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. What's the, ble- the blessed life? It is life in God's house. That's the life I want to live. That's where I want to be. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. And then verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know Zion is the holy city where the Most High God dwells. It is the hill of the Lord. The psalmist says, blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. And the commentators wrestle with what exactly that last phrase means, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. I'm not going to list out all the different proposed interpretations, I'll just give you the one that I prefer. And that is the idea that in his heart, the psalmist's heart, there is this longing to be with God in the place where God has ordained to meet with His people. It's like in his heart, he's always anticipating being with God. Thus, his heart is like a a highway to Zion. That's where my heart's going. My heart's an open highway headed toward the worship of God. That's where I want to be. In his heart are highways leading him to Zion. He feels this inner magnetic pull to the hill of the Lord. That's where I want to be. His heart is like a highway to Zion. I wonder if you uh, know the song, it's kind of an older standard, Uh, I Left My Heart in San Francisco. Uh, You know, I think it's Tony Bennett who made that song most popular. I'm sure Frank Sinatra did it some of those other guys. Listen to these lyrics. The loveliness of Paris seems somehow sadly gray. The glory that was Rome is of another day. I've been terribly alone and forgotten in Manhattan. I'm going home to my city by the bay. I left my heart in San Francisco high on a hill. It calls to me to be where little cable cars climb halfway to the stars. The morning fog may chill the air. I don't care. My love waits there in San Francisco above the blue and windy sea. When I come home to you, San Francisco, your golden sun will shine for me. You hear the longing. He wants to be in San Francisco, the city by the bay, and he's, he's thinking, he's pining, he's yearning to be back in that city with its streets and its cable cars, and there it is in the sun high up on a hill, and he could be in Paris or Rome or Manhattan. He knows, though, he's ultimately not home. He's lonely. There's this longing at all times to be back in the city by the bay. It's actually not entirely unlike what I think the psalmist is communicating in verse 5, except in his case with a much more sacred ambition, and that is to be in the hill of the Lord, to be with the people of God gathered in the place where God makes His special presence known. It's like He's saying at all times, that's where I want to go. That's where I long to be. My heart is like a highway leading me to Zion, and no matter where I am in the world, The place I belong, the place that is my home, the place where I most wish to be is to be among God's people in that place where God's presence is specially made known. That's the first point, the psalmist's longing for gathered worship. Now consider with me, secondly, the psalmist's expectation of meeting God in the context of gathered worship. The psalmist's expectation of meeting God in in the context of gathered worship. Look again at verses 1 and 2. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. What we see here is that for the psalmist to come into the sanctuary of God, the house of God, to come into the temple courts was to come to God Himself. Gathered worship was the environment in which God would make His special presence known, and thus to long for the temple, to long for the tabernacle in earlier days, to long for the courts of the Lord would be to long for an encounter with God Himself. The temple is lovely, as we have already seen, because God dwells there. I can meet Him there. It's said to be His dwelling place, and therefore to say, I love the temple, I love the courts of the Lord, is to say, I love God. I want to be with God. I want to be in His presence. In verse 2, if you could look at verse 2, I'm assuming many here are reading in the ESV, There's a a parallelism in verse 2, that is to say the first idea in verse 2, and then the second idea in verse 2 are meant to parallel one another to express something of the same thought, and we missed that in the ESV, but I think the authorized version, the King James Version, uh, gets it right. You see the first part of the verse, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. That's the object. I'm longing for the courts of the Lord the Lord. And the next phrase, actually a parallel thought, should probably be translated, my heart and flesh cry aloud for the living God. Which I I think is more precisely the idea. I don't think the psalmist is saying, I long for the courts of the Lord, and then when I get in the courts of the Lord, I can't wait to start singing the first song. I'll sing for joy to the Lord. What he's saying is actually the same thing in both of those lines. He's saying, I long for the courts of the Lord, and my, my soul longs also, cries aloud for the Lord. He's saying these are one and the same things. To want to be in the gathered worship of God is a parallel thought to wanting to be with God Himself. He longs for the temple. He longs for the courts of the Lord. He cries aloud for God. Same idea. He's not primarily thinking, you know, I just can't wait uh, to ascend the hill and and to see all of that gold. Just can't wait to see it. I can't wait to be inside uh, the courts of the Lord and to smell uh, the cedars. He's not thinking, I wonder what skit they'll have this time or if they're going to sing my favorite song. I know he's thinking, I want to come into the courts of the Lord, into the dwelling place of God, into the assembly of his people, because it is there that God has pledged himself to meet with me. That's why I want to gather with the Lord's people. I want to come into the house of God because God has revealed that he is there in a special way. I go because I want him. I go to the gathering of the Lord's people, to corporate worship, because I want to have dealings with God. I go because I want to feel His nearness in the gathering, in the worship, in His house. I want God. And I know that He has promised to reveal Himself in special ways, and to disclose His heart and His person in intimate ways, in worship, in the gathering. Therefore, that's where I want to be, and there is no place on earth I'd rather be. So he says, verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. Not in the temple itself, but whose strength is in God. In whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. I don't have time to explain the context of verse 6. You can study it on your own. I'll just say this. If you're in a season of trial and hardship and difficulty... That verse is for you and should inform your thoughts about the worship of God. Verse 7, they go from strength to strength. That is those who come into the dwelling place of God. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Here we see it again in verse 7. The psalmist equates coming to Zion with coming to God Himself. Coming to the city of God, into the house of God, into the dwelling place of God is one and the same of appearing before God Himself. To come to worship is to come to meet with God. You have to appreciate this. It's so important that we see this in Psalm 84. The psalmist comes to gathered worship, and as he does, he has the sense, the confidence that he comes to meet with God Himself. What attracts him, what draws him to the house of the Lord? The singular attraction is that God manifests Himself there. God is pleased to dwell in a special way by His Spirit in the midst of His people when they gather to worship Him. I was reading a book this week by a pastor named Jason Meyer, he was John Piper's successor at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, and he's writing a book on Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he made the comment in that book, when Dr. Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest preachers of the last century or so, when Dr. Lloyd-Jones took the position at Westminster Chapel in the heart of London, he immediately removed various skits and special music that were part of the program at Westminster Chapel, and Jason Meyer makes this uh, 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 note by way of context. He says it's because Dr. Lloyd-Jones believed that in the worship of God, God alone was the only attraction. What draws God's people into corporate worship? What is attractive and lovely and magnetic about the worship of God? It is God Himself. It is the promise that He Himself has pledged to meet with His people in a special way when they gather together and that is the psalmist confidence. Okay, the third and final point. We've seen the psalmist longing for gathered worship, the psalmist expectation of meeting with God in the context of gathered worship. Thirdly and finally, consider with me the psalmist prizing of gathered worship. The psalmist prizing, like win a prize. The psalmist prizing of gathered worship. And I just want you to look at one verse here. It's in verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness." Having shared his longing for gathered worship, his expectation of meeting God in gathered worship, the psalmist concludes with an assessment with an accounting, a testimony of the value of coming to the house of God and gathering with his people to worship him. And he says he prizes just one day in the courts of the Lord than a thousand elsewhere. You kids, this is probably elementary or middle school age math, how many years is a thousand days? Do you know it? It's right around three years, a little bit more than three years so what's the psalmist saying it's better to spend 24 hours in the house of God gathered with his people to worship God than it is to spend three years anywhere else you name the place anywhere in the world you could get three years there or 24 hours in the house of God and the psalmist is saying give me those 24 hours with God's people in God's presence if you're a member here if you've been coming here for any length of time you know me you hear my illustrations you know the things that I like I love going to baseball games Nothing like a Mets game when you walk out of that tunnel and you see the green field for the first time and that smell of peanuts and beer and Cracker Jacks and all that stuff, the smells of the ball game. I like going to rock concerts. You know, I like going to England and walking down old streets and things like that. But I can tell you sincerely, I've never been in the worship of God After some great service where all the prayers and the readings and the message have just just lifted us up to God, and here we are singing the song of response, hands lifted. I've never thought, man, I really wish I could be at the Mets game right now. I, I just really wish I could see you two in concert right now. Better is one day in the courts of the Lord than a thousand elsewhere. And he says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God. For us, that would be like a janitor or a steward. Brothers here who serve as stewards of the church, your work is so often unseen. Praise God for you. Your reward is greater in heaven. This is for you, okay? Better to be a doorkeeper, to be a janitor, to be a steward in the house of God. This is the guy who turns the lights on and off. He cleans up when the party's over. He says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in God's house than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. And of course, the sons of Korah who this is written by or for the sons of Korah were doorkeepers in the house of God. They stood at the entrance, opened the doors for people as they gather. And the assessment is that it's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to spend your days in the tents of wickedness. The joys of God's house, he's saying, and the joys of being in God's presence are greater than anything the world can offer me. No true Christian can sit in the worship of God. I think, you know what, I'd really love to be back at the bar with my old friends. I, I, really, I, I really miss being at the frat house or the club or wherever else the place of sin represented for you. Christians don't think that way. The assessment that the psalmist is making is that it's better to be even a doorkeeper in the house of God, to sit on the back row or to service people with bulletins as they walk in. Better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to spend all your days in the tents of wickedness. I want to be in the house of God more than I want to be anywhere else. It's like he's saying there's no place I'd rather be. It's where I want to live. It's where I want to die. It is home for me. This is where I want to be. This is where I want to spend my days. And I'm longing, I'm fainting for the next time I can be home among the people of God in the presence of God. This is where I want to live. And maybe even where I would die. Uh, Some of you know Andy Davis. He's pastor at First Baptist Church of Durham. He was to come last year and speak at our Feed My Sheep conference. Uh, he had to cancel, actually, because he had a heart attack, and so he wasn't able to be there, and, uh, but he is, God willing, uh, if his heart holds up, uh, will be with us this year at our Feed My Sheep conference in November. Uh, our sister Sarah Guy was at uh, First Baptist Church of Durham. Well, well, I was in a setting where Andy was explaining to a room full of pastors you know, what had happened, and uh, he realized after he'd gotten to the hospital that he actually uh, was beginning to have a heart attack while preaching. So, he's, he's preaching to the people of God, and he's going into cardiac arrest. And he said to his wife, who's there with him in the hospital, wouldn't that be a great way to go? <laughs> and I thought, that's awesome. I hope, I pray that I die right here in this spot, not right now, at a later day. But, but, Preaching my application, offering Jesus to sinners to die right here in this spot. Be great for me, maybe a little awkward for you, but you'll get over it. His experience of God's presence, the psalmist says, in God's house with God's people, there's just nothing better. To spend one day in the courts of the Lord. I, I'd rather be in the house of God than in any other place. I want to live my life among the people of God. I want to live my life in the presence of God. I want to be where God has promised to be in a special way. Okay, I want to transition to some points of application. That's Psalm 84, at least some portions of Psalm 84. What about us? What does this Psalm, written by or for the sons of Korah with its perspective on worship in Zion and worship in the tabernacle or the temple 3,000 years ago, what does this Psalm have to do with us? Well let's just be clear up front our situation is completely different. Uh, it's not really like theirs. Consider the differences. Uh, there is no holy city. It's gone. Uh, we don't make a pilgrimage uh, to any particular place, to any particular city we're not like uh, Muslims who would make a pilgrimage to Mecca were not like medieval Roman Catholics who would make a pilgrimage to Rome. We don't we don't make pilgrimage, as Protestant Christians we we don't have a sacred city, a special city, that is associated with the special presence of God. Consider further, there's no temple anymore. No temple covered with gold, no hill in Zion that we could ascend to come into the special presence of God in the temple courts. Temple's long gone. Solomon's temple was destroyed. That beautiful and elaborate sanctuary for God, it's it's gone. Even the second temple, which they erected when they came out of exile that you can read in Haggai, was just so so much lesser in terms of glory than the previous temple. Uh, It took them 50 years to build it, but even that temple is gone. It was destroyed, uh, we believe, in A.D. 70. That structure is gone. The courts of the Lord are gone. Furthermore, there is no landmark No physical place, no special address I can give you, no court where we can go to access the special presence of God. These are gone, and we don't have access to them, and everything has changed. Indeed, it has changed. Does that mean Psalm 84 is irrelevant for us? What about us in the New Covenant? Well, When you turn to the New Testament and you consider the theme and the subject of worship, there are certain very basic, fundamental, yet pivotal truths that we must appreciate if we're to understand the Bible's holistic teaching on gathered worship. So here's three basic, but pivotal truths that we must appreciate as New Covenant worshipers. Number one, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is the temple. Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, the Son of God, is the temple. John chapter 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And what do they say to him? It took us 46 years to build this temple, and and will you raise it up in three days? And what do we read in John? But he was talking about what? The temple of his body, right? Right? And it says, afterwards, after he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered the thing that the Lord had said to them, that he was speaking of the temple of his body. He's saying, I'm the true temple. In some sense, I replace the temple. And so he could say, even in Matthew 12, verse 6, as he's commenting on the temple, what does he say there? He says, I tell you something greater than the temple is among you. Something better than the temple has arrived. In other words, I'm here. The Son of God sent from the Father, and I am the central access point to God. The special presence of God is located in me and all those who are united to me. Something greater than the temple has come, and thus the Lord can say in Matthew 18, verse 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, in union with me, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am with them also." You have to recognize that's a special promise that goes beyond your quiet time in your closet. God is, in a sense, wonderfully with you when you are in His Word and in prayer in your closet. But this is a special manifestation of the presence of God that comes when the people of God gather together in the name of Jesus to worship Him. And He, as the new temple, brings the presence of God to those who are united to Him. Not a physical address anymore, but a living person who is with us can't go to number 10, Zion Street, and there access the presence of God. Jesus says, you will access God through Me. Something greater than the temple has come. A second and fundamental truth about new covenant worship. The gathered worship of God will not be confined to one set location. The gathered worship of God will not be confined to one set location, but we learn will be wherever God's people are gathered to worship Him. The gathered worship of God, not going to be confined to one particular address or one particular spot on the map. Rather, it will be wherever God's people gather to worship Him. John 4, the account of the woman at the well, she's a Samaritan woman. What does she say to Jesus? Ah, aha, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Speaking of Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans believed that God's special presence was made known. There was a divide between Samaritans and Jews. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mr. Prophet. But, but you say uh, that God is to be worshipped in Jerusalem. Which one is it? What does Jesus say to her? Woman, I tell you, the hour is coming. when neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem. Will the true worshipers worship the Father? But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth, even now the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Even now, He's seeking those from among the peoples of the world who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The age is shifting, Jesus is saying. The hour has been coming. Everything was anticipating this, and it is now here. When neither on Mount Gerizim or on Mount Zion will people access the Father, but wherever people are indwelt by the Spirit of God and worshiping God according to the truth, those who will worship God will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And this is because God is spirit. He can't dwell in temples made by hands. God is spirit, and those who worship Him will worship Him in spirit and in truth, which means we can worship God in the living room, 5209 Huntscroft Court. We can worship God in the classroom down the hall. Worship God in the basement of this building. Worship God out in the parking lot as we did for a month or so there during COVID. Worshiping God in a lovely building like this. You could worship God in a cathedral in London. You could worship God under a mango tree in Zambia the location is not the point. The presence of God's Spirit in the midst of His gathered people is the point. And Jesus is saying now in the new covenant, my presence, my worship will not be associated with a particular mountain or a particular address, but with the people of God who come in union with Christ and dwelt by the Spirit of God when they gather to worship in spirit and in truth. A third and final point we need to appreciate about our situation In the new covenant, and in some ways, it's the most basic and most important. And that is that we have access to God now through Jesus Christ, who is the mediator of a new covenant. We have access to God now through Jesus Christ, who is the mediator of a new covenant. I was going to read portion of Hebrews chapter 12, for the sake of time I will not, but there in Hebrews 12, the writer to the Hebrews is comparing the inferior glory of of the situation the Israelites were in when they came to the mountain of God that was covered with smoke and a cloud. But he says, we now come to the holy city of God, and we come to God through Jesus Christ who is the mediator of a new covenant. I hope by now we're all familiar with 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. We were in those verses a few months ago. I'll read them for you. This is what we learned: 1 Peter 2. As you come to Him, that is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, you, and you, and you, and you, you yourselves, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What is Peter saying? God is pleased to take His people, sinners saved by His grace, and to take them as living stones, and when they come together, to erect, to form, to shape this holy habitation where God will come, where God will dwell. And all of this is ours Through Jesus Christ, through what the Lord has done, our mediator has made a way whereby we have better access. Wherever we gather as the people of God, the Lord Jesus, as our mediator, is pleased to bring us to God if we worship him in spirit and in truth. You see, everything has changed. The sons of Korah are not at all in the same place we are today. They had to ascend a particular hill, they had to enter the temple courts. There were all kinds of ceremonies and forms and sacrifices. They had the priests and the offerings. And thus their access was limited. But it is completely different now. We come to God, brothers and sisters, through Jesus Christ. He is the temple. Wherever His people gather to worship Him in spirit and in truth, in union with Him, He says, I am there also. All these differences. And yet I would argue that those three points of exposition that I gave you, they apply more so and with greater force to us than they could have possibly applied to the sons of Korah. So I want to give them to you again, now with this material fresh in your minds of what you know to be true about new covenant worship. These are my points of application. Number one, we ought to long for gathered worship. We as the new covenant people of God ought to long for the gathered worship of God. We ought to faint and to pine and to yearn for that place where God makes His special presence known when we gather together to worship Him. Do you feel anything of that when you come into this place? You ever ever been there on a Wednesday afternoon and just thought, I can't wait till Sunday. I can't wait to gather with my brothers and sisters. I I just want to be home in that place where God reveals himself to me as his child with the people of God. Friends, if the sons of Korah longed and yearned for the worship of God, where God's presence was specially manifest, how much more? With better promises, better covenant, better mediator, greater and grander access, how much more should we yearn? How much more should our hearts burn within us for the gathering of God's people? Number two, we ought to come to our gatherings. This is so important. We, brothers and sisters, ought to come to our gatherings expecting and intending to meet with God Himself. Did anyone here come here today expecting to meet with God? Did you wake up this morning, take your shower, put on your clothes, rally the family, get in the car with the actual expectation that God was going to fulfill His Word and that He was going to come and that He was going to meet with us? Do you know something of that expectation? God is going to come. God's going to come. We we just have to gather. We have to pray. We have to ask God's Spirit to come. But God is going to come in the midst of the gathering of His people. Did you come with that sense of expectation? Did you come intending to commune and to fellowship with the living God? Or do we come casually, to be entertained, or to be uplifted with some encouraging word from the preacher. Well, the joke's on you because I don't know who would come to our church to seek entertainment, okay? We've stripped things down here to pretty bare New Testament stuff. As Meyer said of Lloyd-Jones, God is the only attraction. He's the only attraction. What else are we going to attract people with? I know we got some creative folks here. We're going to come up with some skit, some kind of song and dance, something that's going to attract people to come and to experience real heart change and life change. God is the only attraction. Do we come intending and longing and expecting to meet with God, and do we feel assured that He will fulfill His promise that when we gather together, He will come and He will be among us? I say it again, as I've said many times, brothers and sisters, when we come, when we find our seats in the worship of God, when we scan that liturgy Sunday by Sunday, we should look for God in this service. I don't mean like look around and find where He is in the building. I'm talking about in your heart, by faith, searching out God in the Scriptures. Is this the Lord's Word for me? Is, is, is there something in the prayers? Can I access God and experience His presence with me? Perhaps in communion, or perhaps in the preaching of the Word of God, you feel heart burning within you that God Himself is speaking to you. God comes in fulfillment of His promise. Brothers and sisters, we should come looking for God in our services of worship. We should come with the anticipation of meeting with God when we come to worship Him. I so appreciated. it. Pastor Ben, I don't know if you remember this, this is maybe a year ago now, we had a gathering and there's just something so rich about it and something about the prayers and the songs and the word preached and maybe we celebrated communion that day, I don't know. It just all, God met with us and after the service, Ben grabbed me by the arm and he said, it felt like God was right here. Isn't that awesome? Have you tasted that? I hope many of you can testify to experiencing that here in this place, that God came In the midst of gathered worship, and through the means of grace, he ministered to my poor and needy soul. And he came and he, he brought us together and he lifted us up and he spoke to us from his word. Children, it's so important that you understand this, especially you young children, but the older ones as well. What do you think we're doing here? We come here, we get all dressed up in our nice clothes. We come into this building, and everything's all orderly, and we kind of stick to the schedule and all that. What do you think's going on here, kids? What do you think we're doing? We believe and we know that we are meeting with God. God is with us even now, and He is making His presence known to His people in this room even now in a special way. That third and final point, I'll just mention it briefly, we should prize the gathering of God's people above all else. We should prize. The sons of Korah prized it. How much more should we prize it? We should prize the gathering of God's people. We should prize new covenant worship all the more. Our attitude, brothers and sisters, should be wild horses couldn't drag us away from the assembly of the Lord's people. This gathering must be to us like a well in a desert. Like a harbor for weather, weather-worn ships that are coming in from the sea. This ought to be a place of refuge for us, a place of safety for us, a rock for us. It should be, be like a hideaway for the people of God to come and to be among the people of God. How sweet and awesome is the place with Christ within the doors. And I'll just be candid: one of the most heartbreaking things to me, genuinely heartbreaking things to me, about Christianity in this particular age in which we live is to see again and again how cheaply Christians esteem the gathering of God's people. Whether or not we go, you know, we usually go. Whether or not we go today, that's sleep in. We'll just catch it online. Let me be clear about this once and for all, and I'll just speak to the people online. I'm so glad you can join us. Welcome to this gathering. What you are experiencing right now is nothing like what's going on in this room. We are under. I'm happy we can offer the online. Believe me, we got shut-ins. We got people who are sick today who can't come in here, or who are away for us from us for some reason. But don't let anyone make the mistake of thinking what happens at home on a laptop or a desktop is anything like what Jesus talked about when he said, "Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am with them also." That promise is not made to those who log on to the desktop. There is something extraordinary and special. And a promise that is pledged to assemblies, to gatherings. And we've said this as elders. We're presently happy to continue offering the online thing. But if we discover that it is becoming some kind of supplement or substitute to the regular gatherings, we will cut that thing off so fast. If it begins to misserve our regular gatherings. The people can be this way in our age. Well, we'll catch it online or we'll listen to it later later whether we go or not. I know for most of us, probably all of us, the last year and a half was really hard. The whole COVID pandemic. And look, we had to shut things down, like legally, we had to shut things down. And so, you know, we had a little substitute. I would come in and I would preach a message, what a joke that was in comparison to this. We did that for eight weeks or so, happy to do that. It's the best we could do in light of what was going on. And then little by little, we began to gather more and more, and, and, and the numbers got bigger, and more folks were able to come back. And listen, for very legitimate reasons, I'm aware, for legitimate reasons many were not able to be in this place to gather to worship with us some people had pre-existing conditions some people were in a higher at-risk category some people were taking care of aging relatives some people were healthcare workers who had a particular stewardship in the hospitals i'm not indicting anybody's motives in staying home i will say this i hope that if there was a prolonged season where you could not be among the people of god i sincerely hope you were miserable it's not a joke I hope it was agonizing for you. How would the sons of Korah think about being deprived of the worship of God? Did you miss us? And did you miss this? The gathering of the people of God? That special context of blessing where the means of grace are extended? God's people together with united hearts and united spirit come to worship God, and God in fulfillment of His promise comes and dwells among us and ministers to us. Not saying anybody sinned, but I hope one thing God has worked, if if we don't learn this lesson shame on us, I hope that God worked within us a renewed longing and hungering and fainting and yearning for the gathering to be among God's people. Where his special presence is revealed and made known. We should prize this day, brothers and sisters, above every day of the week. I've said this before, I'll say it again. The 90 minutes that we are gathered together here every Sunday are the most important minutes of your life. I don't care who you are or what you do. I don't care what your job is, how much you earn. I don't care how long it's been since you saw your family or your in-laws. These 90 minutes are the most important minutes of your life. I don't care if you're on the brink of coming up with a cure for cancer. You are never more who you are as God's child than when in the assembly of the people of God to worship God. And we are never more a church than when we are gathered together. I say this to people all the time. People who email online want to get to know the church or they're trying to learn about the church. I say you need to come to our assemblies. Got to come to our gatherings. This is Emmanuel Church gathered in the presence of God under the means of grace and under his word to worship him with united heart. We should prize the worship of God. I hear this old saying sometimes, sometimes in membership interviews or in other settings. Um, It's kind of lampooned in our day, but people will talk about their old Baptist upbringing or their fundamentalist upbringing, and they'll say, well, you know, Dad, we were there every time the doors were open. Now, I understand why people say it that way. You know, if what they mean by that is that it was an indication of some sort of dead religious formalism, and Mom and Dad were doing this to kind of earn their way to heaven or something like that. Uh, We were there every time the doors were open, and that was kind of just where the car went but if, what people mean by that when they say we were there every time the doors were open, is that we knew that God was going to be there and we just, we just wanted to be there. We wanted to be with Him. I wanted to experience communion with Him and fellowship with Him. So if the church doors were open and God's people were gathered, man, I was going to be there. If that's what people mean when they say that, that is a righteous aspiration, to be with God's people whenever those doors are open, wherever God's people meet and whenever they do so. This is the last thing I'll say. I anticipate in this room and in this sermon, there are three types of people. There are some of you here, Christians, who your hearts are, are yearning for something like what I'm talking about. Yes, that's why I've come. That's why I've come. And that's what I've experienced by God's grace and his kindness. I've known, I've known the presence of God in the worship of God. That, that's one type of person here. There's a second type of person here. You're a Christian. You're a genuine Christian, a sincere, born-again Christian who has faith in Jesus Christ. But as I've been sharing these thoughts from this psalm in Psalm 84 and some of the points of application, you've been, you've been wondering. You've been a bit puzzled. I don't think of worship this way. No, Pastor Alex, I did not come with those kinds of associations into this gathering this morning. Listen, it's okay. It's okay. What do you need? You need two things. Again, I'm assuming a genuine Christian here who's in this state. Number one, you need to think differently about what's going on here. Begin, train your mind in light of what's true in God's Word. In some of these passages I've read, think differently about what's going on here. Begin to train your mind and your heart to consider and to ponder and reflect on what is true about gathered worship. Think differently about what's going on here. And then secondly, pray to God and ask Him, this sounds awesome, this sounds so sweet, and I've just not been thoughtful about this. I've not come expecting this or looking for this, and I've allowed myself to be distracted, and I've been checking the phone, and I've not come with the proper expectation. Lord, please, I want to begin to experience this, and see if God doesn't open your heart Open your eyes to see things and behold things that you never saw before taking place in assemblies like this. Then there's a third type of person in this room. You're not a Christian, you're not a child of God and you are wondering what in the world did I get into this morning? What is this goon rambling about and foaming at the mouth about and shouting at us for? I don't know what in the world he's talking about. This sounds like some kind of cult to be frank with you and I can't wait till they say amen so I can get out of here. Okay, what do you need? You need to be born again, or you will never see what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It's like you don't have eyes to see these things. What you need is to be born again and have faith in Jesus Christ, and then... Then you will see things you never saw before. I watched a video this week. Someone sent it to me. um, Here are these Enchroma glasses. They'll give them to people who are colorblind. And I dare the toughest guy in this room to watch these videos of people wearing those glasses for the first time and not cry as you see these people react to seeing color for the first time. They put on these glasses and all of a sudden they see things they never saw before. That is something like what happens in new birth. God is pleased Not just to change your mind to think a little bit differently about Jesus. He is pleased by his spirit to cause you to be born again and to become a new creature. And you will see and think and feel and crave and desire things you never knew were possible. As best as I can tell, I was born again on February 7th, 2001. I don't know if it was exactly that date. I think it was that date. Doesn't matter at all what the date was because I know I believe Jesus now. But I think I was born again on February 7th. 2001. You know it was one of the sweetest things and one of the most distinct things in my memory about that season of my life was the first Sunday after I came to faith in Christ. I'd grown up in church. There's nothing different in terms of the liturgy. It was the same preacher, same basic songs I grew up on. Everything was different. And There was a glory to it all and a beauty to it all. And there was a presence in it all that I hadn't seen before. Heaven above was softer blue. And earth around was sweeter green. Something lives in every hue. Christless eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs o'erflow. Flowers with deeper beauty shine. Since I know, as now I know, I am His and He is mine. You can come to see like that through being born again. You need to go to God. You need to ask Him, give me a new heart. Remove my blindness, my sin, and my night. I want to see. I want to know what he's talking about. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I'm so sick of the tents of wickedness. I hate the tents of wickedness. I'm so tired of them. I'd like to know something like that. And my friend, if you come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, he will change you. He will save you. He will put away your sins from you. And you will know as never you knew what is going on in assemblies like this. Your eyes, your scales will be removed, and you'll be enabled to see the glories of gathered worship. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven. It's a stirring thing to read Psalm 84 and to see how your people in that age craved to be in your presence among your people. And yet we have so many greater privileges, so much wider access as those who have benefited from a better covenant, those who have had the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and our mediator between us and you. Oh, Lord, forgive us for squandering our privileges. Forgive us for holding the gathering to be something cheap. May we esteem these gatherings more and more. You say in your word that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but that we're to meet together, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. We pray that these assemblies Sunday by Sunday, week by week, as long as we live, would become sweeter and richer and deeper, May we experience more and more intimate communion with you. May we go deeper with the living God. May you be pleased to bless us in the context of gathered worship. Make our gatherings to be awesome, not with ornate gold, but with the presence of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.